Well, good morning. I hope you had a great week off last week. Um, last time we covered two verses. This time we're covering most of two chapters. And so, um, yeah, we're, we're going to take a little longer with our, with our main group lesson, but um, I think it's some good stuff. So how was your homework? Uh, did anything stand out to you from Romans 12 or 13? And how did you feel God leading you through this passage? Yeah, it boils down to love, right. Well, as a refresher, Romans 12 begins a new section of the book. Um, Paul takes us from doctrine in the first 11 chapters into really, uh, into action, into application for the last five chapters. Uh, so. In other words, we're no longer reading about why we should be doing something, but what we should be doing. And so these last five chapters are telling us how we should be responding to the gospel. So just as a reminder, let's read Romans 12, 1 and 2. And so that's kind of the big picture that, that not only sets up our passage for today, but really the rest of the book. Um, Paul wants us to be a living sacrifice, and he wants us to, to renew our minds, to trans transform, um, be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And, and the, really the rest of the book tells us how to do this, or tells us ways to do this. So we're just going to dig right into our passage. Uh, so Romans 12, 3 through 8. And so last time it was being transformed by the renewing of our mind, and this week it's thinking with sober judgment. 
Uh, and so what do you think is meant by sober judgment? Thinking clearly. Yeah, anything else? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, and when we think about, when you think about that word sober, that is what comes to mind is, is drunkenness versus being sober. And that is kind of the way you, you do have to think about it. When you're, when you're thinking with sober judgment, you're using sober judgment, it's rigorously accurate. You are completely in touch with reality and, and that it, there is a, a clarity of mind with that. Basically, it's that we need to have a right view of ourselves. And we live in a world where everyone is showing their best as their regular. And so we also, you know, because normally when I'm at home, it's, it's if I don't have to go anywhere for the day, I'll wear my sweatpants but I call them my stay-at-home pants, because, you know. But normally it's just a t-shirt, t-shirt and jeans. I'll go to the grocery store in a t-shirt and jeans. Well, today, this isn't a t-shirt. It's not like super fancy, because that's not who I am, but I, I'm not just wearing a t-shirt with like Yoda on the front of it, right? I'm showing my best as my regular, uh, and so we, it's easy to, to get down on ourselves a bit. We have to fight ourselves to remember our d identity is in Christ instead of the world. And yet we also live in a world where society practically forces us to show off about what we're doing good. Uh, and, 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 and we have to sort of fight that battle as well. Uh, Timothy Keller says, despite all the warnings, that our culture gives about the danger of low self-esteem, the real danger is self-centeredness and egocentricity. Ego, egocentricity. So it's just this idea that we have to be honest when we evaluate ourselves. Now this is different than what Paul says in some other letters. Not different like complete opposites, but he's, he's making a slightly different point here. He's not saying to humble yourself. He's not saying consider others better than you. He is saying we need to think realistically about ourselves. And he says this in conjunction with his discussion about the spiritual gifts and about being part of the body of the church. And so why do you think that we need to, to be thinking realistically, using sober, sober judgment about ourselves when we're considering our, our gifts? Yes, to, to be effective. And then you said the second part is, is because that's what he created us for, right? That's exactly right. <laughs> we, we have Debbie to make things look pretty. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's so we can recognize and acknowledge our gifts appropriately and that we can use them in accordance with God's will. And we receive gifts by God's grace, but they must be exercised and accepted by faith. 
And Warren Wiersbe says, nothing causes more damage in a local church than a believer who overrates himself and tries to perform a ministry that he cannot do. Think about that. I'm going to read it again. Nothing causes more damage in a local church than a believer who overrates himself and tries to perform a ministry that he cannot do. When we appropriately acknowledge what we can do well, it makes us able to serve others. When it comes to Bible study, I know that this is my gifting, that this teaching is the part of the, it's the aspect of Bible study that I can do well. Ask me to bring a hot dish? Oh my word, that kills me. But then there's some of you that come in and you bring this amazing food, right? I can follow a recipe, I can cook, but you ask me to do it for others and it's just a miserable experience. When I have to take a meal to somebody, we ask them where their favorite restaurant is and we either buy a gift card or we order it and have it delivered to their house. Like, um, you know, I, I know my limits. I know that, that limitation for me and, and so that's, that's where I have to recognize and serve. I can bring a drink anytime, you know. <laughs> yeah. you know? But, but now that we know how to think about ourselves, we have to see how we work together in faithful cooperation. And God gave us each gifts in order to help the body grow in a balanced way. And we can only have the whole body, the whole church, grow in a balanced way if we are using the gifts that that we were given the fedex man is bringing a package <laughs> thank you <laughs> and just like the parts of the human body we as members of the church body each have different purposes and first uh, corinthians 12 also uses this body analogy um, but but when I've taught this concept I've taught it to kids in the past and I have asked them to try to tie a shoe without using their thumbs have you ever tried that it's it's not easy or how about trying to walk without bending your knees it's not easy uh, both Ray and Catherine have hearing loss um, and it's just this teeny tiny part of their inner ear that doesn't work properly uh, it, it was we don't know for sure for Ray but for Catherine it wasn't formed properly in the womb and and Ray's likely was but we just didn't know to have it checked early enough but a small part of their bodies doesn't work properly and it has a huge impact on them so just like in a body, each part serves a specific function, and each of them are important, each gift is also important. There are no gifts that are more important than any of the others. And so Paul lists some of these spiritual gifts here um, in Romans 12. That's not an exhaustive list. Uh, he also talks about the gifts in 1 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, and in Ephesians 4. Uh, and then, but then it's, you've got all these gifts that, that 
God gives, how do we determine what our spiritual gifts actually are? I'm getting there. I'm getting there. Look, I'm prepared. <laughs> and so Paul told us that first step is sober judgment. It's being realistic. It's being honest with yourself. But the second aspect of that is experience. And so like verse 6 tells us, that is that we have to use them. So when I first took a spiritual gift inventory, and actually the first several times I took spiritual gift inventories, I always had the, top, the same top three gifts. It was faith, helps, and administration. Sometimes that faith one had a slightly different name. Um, one time it was called prayer, but it was always the same, um, same concepts. I was comfortable with these areas, except as we've talked about in the past, praying out loud, that's a completely different issue. Uh, but I accepted that these were my gifts and I served accordingly. However, while Ray was in seminary, I was blessed with the opportunity to take some classes in a program that was specifically for seminary wives. It was so that we as wives could sort of get a taste of what some of what our husbands were learning, but also that we could learn how to serve alongside them. Uh, I took classes on theology, uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament, uh, biblical her hermeneutics, that's a big fancy word for just interpretation. I even took a class called Greek for the Rest of Us, where I learned how to really dig deep into the words being used and how to go back to the Greek and why it was important to go back to those original languages to understand what was actually being said. And then I took a class that was, it was called inductive Bible study, but the point was to actually learn how to teach a Bible study. For the first time in that class, I was told that I had a gift for studying and teaching. And that was new. I'm the person that in college chose to take a public speaking class over thermodynamics. I was given the option of which catalog I wanted to follow. Uh, because I knew that it would be more challenging for me. And I think I may have shared some of that experience. It may not have been in this group, but I have shared it at some point. Um, yeah, it was quite the challenge for me. And yet here I was told that I might just have a gift for getting up in front of people and teaching them. But then I started teaching, started with kids, um, some as young as two, some as old as fifth grade, helped out with youth occasionally. I really enjoyed it, and I did find that I was good at it. So the most recent spiritual gifts inventory that I took had the following top results. Wisdom, teaching, administration, knowledge, and pastor slash shepherd. So does that mean that faith and helps were wrong all those years? No. Uh, I'm still very happy to be in the background serving with what needs to be done with the helps, and, and that was actually number six of my top. Uh, that's definitely what God called me to do when he called me to be a, a pastor's wife. And while I think faith is still accurate in some ways, I think it's the wisdom that it was really trying to show me, but that I hadn't had that experience to truly understand that that's what those things were and not that it was just pure faith. And so while spiritual gift inventories you find online are great to give you a starting point, 
there is a lot more to it than just what you can learn on paper. And verses 7 and 8 here tell us that we don't just need to learn what our gifts are, we need to be actively using them. We need to use what we are given because God gave you a purpose in them. We often read and memorize Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, but today we're going to read it with verse 10. So I gave someone Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. So you've been saved by grace, through faith, not by works. Hugely important. That's part of what Paul's been talking about through the first part of Romans, right? But then we have to remember that verse 10. Why were you saved? And according to Ephesians 2.10, it's because we were created for good works. And what was special about those good works? God prepared them in advance for us. Did you catch that? God saved you and God gave you gifts because he has a plan with specific tasks for you to accomplish. Not just for me to accomplish, but for each and every one of us in this room. There are plenty of places to serve in the church. And just because the position is open doesn't mean that's the place you should dedicate all of your time to. Don't get me wrong. There are moments when everybody needs to just take a turn in the nursery because we're desperate. Right? It, it, it's important. Sometimes you just have to step up and serve where there's a need. But that should not be where your main service area is. Ray has needs for people to serve with the welcome team on Sunday mornings. But he doesn't want someone standing at a door greeting people every week if they aren't passionate about welcoming people and aren't happy to serve in that area. It comes across. He would rather help you find a place that fits you well rather than have you fill a slot on his monthly calendar. If you are interested in welcoming and greeting people, let me know and I'll connect you. I can hook you up. But... Um, but otherwise, that's, that's, that's not where you need to be. And this is one of the reasons that I like the place class that Elizabeth teaches here at the church. It includes a spiritual gifts inventory, but it also looks at your passions, your personality, your experiences, all those things. But she doesn't just leave you with a piece of paper with your results. She or one of her team members look and, and look at your results with you. They meet with you, they sit down with you, and they find what you should be serving, where you should be serving, what you should be doing. She wants you to find a place that is right for you. So a new session of place is coming up in a few weeks. It's going to be three Thursday nights. Um, the information is here. It's April 21st, 28th, and May 1st. It's going to be right here in this building. The plan is to be upstairs in the upper room, but if that, if mobility is an issue, stairs are an issue, we'll move it. Not a big deal, right? So 
I have the information for you and I'm going to pass these around if, if you are interested. Thank you, ma'am. And so if you have questions, if you have questions, see Elizabeth. She will gladly talk to you about it. But th that is what you should be doing with your spiritual gifts and that you should be serving. But then Paul goes on and, and talks some more. And so um, it was not Romans 12, 9 through 20 that I gave to somebody because that doesn't make sense. But I gave them 9 through something. 9 through 16. And so Paul here, he's, he's changed his emphasis to the attitudes of those who are exercising their spiritual gifts, the attitudes of those who are serving. And in just verse 9, Paul gives us three imperatives. He tells us to be sincere or genuine. That's what, uh, yeah, that word is different in different translations. It says to, to hate evil and to cling to good. And so that word genuine or sincere in Greek is unhypocritos. That's where our word unhypocritical comes from. It means not phony. It means don't do one thing on the outside while you're feeling another way on the inside. Then it says to hate evil. And that word hate means to be horrified at evil. Growing up, one of the things my mother always told us was hate is a strong word. She wanted us to recognize and remember what we were saying when we used that word so that we wouldn't just throw it out there willy-nilly. Well, I hate this, and I hate that, and I hate you, right? She was trying to make the point that it's, it is something that's, that's important. It's significant. And so when I see the word hate... I know it's something to not take lightly. It is definitely a serious command from Paul. But it's interesting that we are commanded to love sincerely while hating evil. And that contrast should catch your attention. Those, those contrasts, that's one of those things that, that um, on your early on, we talked about making note of those contrasts because they, they should catch your attention. Loving someone sincerely means loving someone enough to confront them when they are wrong. Our children don't always understand it, 
but we discipline them because we love them. And that third imperative was to cling to what's good, to, to cling, to hold fast. It's literally, the literal meaning is to glue yourself inseparably. Have you ever used super glue and gotten it stuck between your fingers? You're holding that little part on and it just oozes out and you know what's going to happen, right? Your fingers are stuck and you have to do some work to get them apart, right? That's what he's talking about. That's what that hold fast, that cling is talking about. It's like super glue. But, but Timothy Keller reminds us that, that any love that is afraid to confront the beloved, the person they love, is not really love, but a selfish desire to be loved. This kind of selfish love is afraid to do what is right toward God and the beloved if it risks losing the beloved's affection. It makes an idol out of the beloved. It says, I'll do anything to keep him or her loving me. This is not loving the person. This is not that genuine, sincere love. It is loving the love you get from the person. And, and that's, what, that's what just that verse, verse 9, for our love to be genuine, we have to hate evil and cling to good. And we have to confront those we love because we have to hate the sin in their lives. And so that was, that was friends, that's people we love. But Paul goes on in this passage about our enemies. And so how in the world does one love your enemies while being sincere? That's what that's what Paul's telling us to do, right? But we have to think about it with a gospel love. When we focus on the gospel while serving and loving others, then we're able to do it sincerely because we are repentant and we're growing while we're serving. We're not loved by God because we are worthy or lovely. We are loved by God because of the death of Jesus Christ. And when we take that mindset into our, to dealing with our enemies, that's, that's how we can love sincerely. That's how we can have sincere service. And then Paul tells us, in, he does tell us in verses 10 through 16 what that love looks like. Um, Timothy Keller broke it into to really four groups, four things about love. He says, real love is doggedly committed. And if you look in the ESV, it says, love one another with brotherly affection. Right? Some, some, um, some translations just say to love, you know, and, but that brotherly affection gives you that picture, because that's the actual love word that's used, but it gives us that picture of loving someone like they are your family. And then he says, the, the second thing is, is that real love is putting others first. Um, and Philippians 2, 3, I gave to somebody. 
And so this is, this is that idea where he's saying um, in the ESV, outdo one another in showing honor. This is that idea that Paul is expressing, that we are all made in God's image, and so should, we should be honoring everyone and treating them as valuable and precious. We have to remember that outdoing others does not mean you're making yourself inferior to them. It just means that you are focusing on the needs of others rather than focusing on your needs first. Then the next group of things is the idea that real love is patient. And so in in verses, uh, I wrote down 11, 12, and 14, Paul gives us several things to think about. What, What are those things that he says? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it's it's not being slothful in zeal, you know, that's the giving of your heart to someone. Don't hold back. Be patient in trials. Be constant in in prayer. Bless and do not curse. You know what that one means? Forgive others. If you're blessing instead of cursing, you are forgiving them. Those are all things that take patience. But finally, real love combines feeling with action actively meeting the needs of others. Love is doing whatever it takes to give people whatever they need. It's it's taking sacrifice of emotion on your part, of action on your part, on your rights. It means you give someone both the truth, which may or may not be what they want to hear, but also the help they need. And then we get to to verses 17 through 21, where we really start to specifically focus, or where Paul really starts to, to specifically focus on our enemies. So Romans 12, 17 through 21. As Christians, we are called to live on a higher level than the world. And Paul is specifically telling us one of those things is to repay evil with good. Sometimes our first inclination is to fight back. But we cannot play God and avenge ourselves. We have to have faith that God will accomplish his will for us 
and for our enemies. So just, uh, Warren Wearsby says, if you defend yourself, then the Lord can't defend you. If, if you defend yourself, you are taking that opportunity away from the Lord. So when we repay evil with evil, we lose the battle to evil. Because the only way to win that battle is to do good to the evil, to forgive and to love. This is easy to say and to think about, but sometimes it's just harder to do. It takes prayer, a lot of prayer. It's asking God for help, for patience, for faith to trust him in it. But then Paul moves from our relationship to others into our relationship as citizens to the state. And so that uh, Romans 13 verses 1 through 4. Just as a reminder, before we get into this too much, Pastor Matt preached on this topic a few weeks ago. It's a great one to listen to. It's on the website or the Mount Calvary Church Sermon Podcast. If you need help finding this, let me know. I will gladly help you. Um, and he, he really spent the whole sermon on something that we only get to spend a few minutes on. So if you didn't hear it a few weeks ago, I, I highly recommend you, you do find that one and listen to it. Um, but a couple of things. First, about this specific passage, um, it has nothing to do with the church-state discussion. This is about individual citizenship. And then second, we have to think about who Paul's audience is. You know, that's one of those goals with the way we're studying the Bible is to think back to who Paul was writing to, why he was writing the book. And so he was writing to whom? The church in Rome, Roman Christians. At this point in time, Christianity was still considered a sect of Judaism. It was still technically approved but the government was quickly turning against them. I mean, we think of Jesus' death, right? That's kind of the government. Granted, it was the Jewish leaders, but the government still allowed him to be put to death, right? Think about just Paul's life and his imprisonment. But simply put, Paul says to submit to the government. 
We've talked about this word submit before a number of times, but just a brief refresher, that Greek word is hypotasso. And as a military term, it means to arrange troops in a military fashion under the command of a leader. As a non-military term, it means a voluntary attitude of giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, and carrying a burden. And so Paul gives us some reasons why we should submit to the government. And first he says it's because God established it. And so let's look at Daniel 4.17. So remember last year, we had the, the kind of fun book of Ruth, right? And then we went into Daniel and King Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar was the Babylonian king, not Jewish, far from Jewish, very pagan king. And yet That verse is from that book referring to that king saying that God was in control. That God was the authority and gave the authority to the pagan king Nebuchadnezzar. God established the government because we as humans are sinful and we needed guidance. And verse 4 says that, that he is God's servant for your good. Even if government officials are not believers, they are still ministers of God because God established their authority. Uh, and then later on, which we'll get to it in a minute, verse 7 tells us about paying what we owe. Um, in specifically paying what we owe, but, but in verse, um, this first part of the passage, it, it just talks about there being um, four, basically, four things we have to pay. Taxes, right, and we'll get to that one. Revenue, so if you have someone working for you, you need to pay them for working for you. Respect and honor. And those two are kind of addressed in this first part. If these officials are servants of God, then we must show them respect and honor. Even if we don't respect them personally or politically, we must respect the office that they hold. Several years ago, Barack Obama was still president, so several years ago, I was listening to a podcast by Dr. Russell Moore. Um, He was discussing government and ethics, and he made a statement, which wasn't the main point of the podcast, but that's what normally happens for me, that truly stuck with me all these years later and has truly challenged me. And it's a very simple challenge, but it changed the way I thought about political leaders. And here's what he said make sure to use titles when you're referring to the leader. 
He's saying I shouldn't simply call him Obama, but President Obama, or President Trump, or President Biden. Like I said, simple and yet profound, because it is a reminder every time I speak about them of the office that they hold or held and the respect that that office deserves. This isn't just for the president, it's for senators, for mayors. We do it for teachers, right? It's, it's Mr. Greist is the school superintendent or Mrs. Whitmer is the Spanish teacher. Our students show them respect by using Mr. and Mrs. And so it's a simple thing to remind you to respect the office they hold. Uh, and then I didn't put in here which passage, but it's, did I give someone Romans 13, four through seven? I may not have, I did. Oh, did I give you one through seven? Great. Do you mind reading the, I guess it's five through seven because I had you read four before. Sorry. See, I should have had you read that before I did the last part. But here, if we read chapter 13, verses 5 through 7, <laughs> it reminds us that we should obey not out of fear of punishment, but because of our conscience. Again, anybody can obey out of fear. But we as Christians should be different. Our, our morality is what should drive our submission. Now a note here that we as Christians have to remember is that while Paul is speaking in absolutes, because he says, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, verse five reminds us that conscience rules. Um, Acts 5.29. So there may be times in being ruled by a pagan government that we will have to make a choice between God's rule and man's rule. And without a doubt, we should follow God. I remember a conversation many years ago, I think when I looked it up, it was 2015. Andrew was still in elementary school and we'd had the news on the TV. And then while I was making dinner, Ray and I were having a conversation about um, some pastors in Houston, Texas, that were being forced to turn over their sermons and their notes to the government to basically be studied for hate speech. And he had seen that the penalty for these pastors was jail if they failed to turn them over or if they were found to have what someone deemed as hate speech. And I remember the look on his face when Andrew, about nine years old, was asking us if daddy would ever have to go to jail because he was preaching what the Bible said. It was heartbreaking as a mother. 
But we talked to him. We said, yes, if it came to that, daddy would go to jail. But that he wouldn't stay there because they couldn't keep him with the other laws that were in place. But then we reminded him about Daniel 6. Again, another chapter we studied last year, Daniel 6, where Daniel was faced with praying to God or to the king. And he chose to pray to God. Daniel knew that he would still face the consequences of the government. He went obediently into the lion's den, submitting to the government. And he knew that whether he lived or died, he would bring glory to God through it. And so even when we stand with God against the government, we must face the consequences of the disobedience. And we have to let God fight that battle. Just like repaying evil for evil, we have to let God fight that battle instead of us playing God. I'm going to caution you, though, the number of times that the government goes directly against the word of God are few and far between. Very few and far between. As in, most of us will never face that situation. Because here's the biblical basis for civil disobedience. If the state commands what God forbids, or if the state forbids what God commands. So in Daniel, it was the lion's den story was because Daniel prayed to God instead of to the king. Also in Daniel, this is in Daniel chapter 3, it's the fiery furnace, because those men did not bow down to an idol. And then in Exodus, I think, I, I did not write down which chapter, I would have to look it up again, but the Hebrew midwives in Exodus, when they would hide the children, the babies, instead of, of drowning them. And then in Acts, when Paul and the other apostles are preaching the gospel. Going against the government is not a matter of preference or choice. And just like with taxes, Warren Wiersbe says, we may not agree with all that is done with the money we pay in taxes, but we dare not violate our conscience by refusing to pay. Paying taxes is a matter of conscience. What is paid for with the tax dollars is less of an issue. Because again, God established that authority. And then finally, Paul moves from strictly obeying government officials to anyone and everyone. Uh, and it's Romans 13, 8 through 14.
So here, Paul is going from calling us to participate with the government to participating in public life. He tells us that God's law is his guideline on how to love others and how to do good for those around us. He tells us that love is what fulfills the law, and if we love others, we will not sin against them. So our motive for living rightly is not the law, but love. I definitely don't have time to go into it today, but verse 8 is is not a command to never borrow money. I'd be happy to talk to you more about that, but um, if you have specific questions, but debt is not a sin. Failing to pay your debt is. And this is an instance where we have to let the whole of Scripture, the whole Bible, help us to interpret the individual passage. Um, see me. I can talk you through it. There's just not time today for the large, the, the whole group um, for that. But then Paul closes in verses 11 through 14 by emphasizing the return of Christ. He reminds us that we are not just citizens of this world, but of the eternal kingdom, and that our life here on earth is brief, and we need to focus on the eternal things. That's what he's talking about when, when he's saying that, that this hour has come for you to wake from sleep. That's, that's his saying, life is short, but eternal life and the eternal kingdom is what, what our focus should be on. So Warren Wearsby sums it up like this. In, in other words, a Christian citizen ought to be the best citizen. Christians may not always agree on politics or parties, but they can all agree on their attitude toward human government and other people. So for next week, we're meeting here again, right? Correct. Yeah. We are back here at the Ministry Center, and we will be covering Romans 14, verse 1, through Romans 15, verse 13. And hopefully we have enough time to break into our, I mean, we have enough time to break into our small groups, but you have enough time for your discussion in your small groups and your prayer time.